Thank you, John, and welcome back. Am I on? Yes. It's nice that we can actually start our evening in daylight, isn't it? And maybe that's a sign of moving from some of the darker bits of Revelation to the lighter bits of it, although there will be some dark bits tonight, I'm afraid, and next week in the first half, before we do reach the celestial light of chapter 22 at the very end of our five weeks together. Um, one or two of you have just been asking about Norman Warren's health. Norman was vicar here from 1963 to 1977. I'm glad to tell you that he's back home out of hospital and I think is, is, is doing fine, um, but I'll keep you updated as and when I can. And one of you last week was asking what version of the Bible I was using or we were using. The answer is the new revised standard version Brackets, anglicized text. I'm not sure quite what an anglicized text is, but anyway, it's the new RSV anglicized text. So there you are. Let's do our first reading together. It's on page 18 of your workbooks. As we move to chapters 12, 13, and 17. And I've headed this, round one of the cosmic conflict, the dragon frustrated, and we're going to read together verses one <clears throat> to six of chapter 12. So here goes. A great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, and was crying out in birth pangs in the agony of giving birth. Then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child, so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, so that there she can be nourished for 1,260 days. They think it's all over. As English fans invaded the pitch, BBC's Kenneth Wooston Holmes' famous line, commentating on the 1966 Football World Cup final at Wembley, and then when Jeff Hurst scored another goal for England, making it 4-2, Worcester Holmes' climax, well, it is now. And maybe at the end of last week's session in Revelation chapter 11, we thought it was all over. After all, we heard loud voices in heaven proclaiming, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. So Jesus' victory seemed complete and total. But as far as Revelation is concerned, it's not all over. There are still 11 chapters to go. 
Or to put that another way, God, through Jesus Christ, has revealed to John a whole lot more, which John has to pass on. So we enter another series of visions. Visions which tell us more about that bitter cosmic conflict that's being fought out behind the scenes. A conflict which the hard-pressed Christian church at the time of John's writing was experiencing acutely when confronted, of course, by the secular authorities. Rome in the first instance. So the empire, with its bloodthirsty persecution, with its anti-Christian blasphemies, with its gross materialism, with its flagrant sexual licentiousness, and above all, its pride or hubris. Everything, in fact, summarized in chapter 18 as the maddening wine of her adulteries. And I'd like you to hold on to that phrase because it's very important in our understanding of the latter part of Revelation. The maddening wine of her adulteries, chapter 18. But of course, all this does not just apply to first century AD Rome. It embraces, I hope to show you, many secular and anti-Christian regimes and systems down the centuries. So in chapters 12 to 20, we hear more about God's final and irreversible judgment on all evil. And in particular, we learn more about the identities of the enemies of God and his Christ, the enemies who all suffer judgment in the end. We were given just a fleeting glimpse of the foe back in chapter 11, verse 7, where we heard about the beast that comes up from the abyss. Well, who is this beast and who are his allies? And what more can we learn about his warring fury? What we shall see mainly is actually his last desperate throws of the dice. So with that introduction, welcome to chapters 12, 13, and 17. They are not easy passengers, passages, but some commentators think that chapter 12, in particular, is the center or fulcrum of the whole book. I think it may help us if we think of the three chapters as a battle drama or diorama, a drama with seven characters or combatants. So follow me if you can, imagine it in your mind's eye. Over here in this corner, so to speak, we have God's team. Three characters. One, a spiritual woman who is pregnant. Two, this woman's child, a son. And thirdly, the archangel Michael contesting on behalf of the first two. A spiritual woman, the woman's child, and the archangel Michael ranged against them, as it were in this corner, four assailants. One, a red dragon, we've just read about him, and second, third, and fourth, the dragon's three allies. A beast from the sea, a beast of the earth, and another woman called Babylon, the mother of prostitutes. So three verses four, and chapter 12 focuses on the first four of the seven. So the pregnant woman, the baby, and Michael versus the red dragon. So are you ready to take a drone ride over the battlefield? 
A great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs in the agony of giving birth. Who is this? Well, the number 12, the 12 stars, gives it away, surely. Israel had 12 tribes, so here, personified as a woman, is God's people, or the church, of the Old Testament. And the woman is enduring severe birth pangs. A picture of Israel through the Jews, through much trauma and many ups and downs, spawning a very special child, the long-promised Messiah or Deliverer. So the agonies of pregnancy, all the Old Testament history that are sort of leading up to the arrival of the child. And immediately the arrival of the child is imminent, there is danger, enter the enemy. Verse 3, then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and seven diadems or crowns on his head. And who can this be? Well, the answer actually comes in verse 9, which we didn't read. We'll come to it later. But let me tell you, verse 9 says, the great dragon was thrown down, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So here is the arch enemy, the spiritual enemy of humankind. And he is clearly very powerful, though not all powerful. He has seven heads, seven, remember, Revelation's code number for completeness. Here is total evil. What's he doing? Verse 4. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son who is to rule all the nations. Well, no doubt who the son is. And no doubt really where we are now. We're at Bethlehem. And the infant saviour Jesus is under dragon-like threat. In earthly parlance, under threat from the evil, scheming monster, King Herod. Out to destroy this potential rival, Herod, the tool of Satan. But Herod, and so the dragon, is frustrated, isn't he, by the wise men. We know the story. They went back to their country, another route. The babe Messiah is unharmed. So verse 5. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne. A bit cryptic this, but perhaps a reference to the fact that Jesus' life was threatened again during his ministry. Remember when he went back to Nazareth and preached, the crowd nearly lynched him. But he is always invisibly protected by the occupant of the throne until his passion at Easter time. What about the woman then? Verse 6, she fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God so that there she can be nourished for 1,260 days. The woman still represents the people of God, but now it's not Israel anymore, but it's Israel's successor, the fledgling Christian church. 
And where has the church gone? Well, says this vision, into the wilderness or the desert. That's interesting. Just as Israel, the Old Testament equivalent, had been on its pilgrimage journey from Egypt to the promised land, so we, Christian pilgrims, mirror that. We in the church also go, as it were, into a desert or wilderness. Why? Well, a desert is a lonely place, and it's a place of struggle, isn't it? But in the Old Testament, it was a place where God's people learnt to depend on God. They learnt many, many lessons in that place. In the same way, you and I, with the church, in the church, in the wilderness, are there to learn many, many lessons from God. A place of struggle then, but paradoxically, of course, for Old Testament Israel, it was also a place of safety and divine protection. And so it is with us. In our wilderness, it is also a place of safety and divine protection. I wonder if it's church life and being a Christian sometimes feels wilderness-like. Lonely. A bit up against it and on our own. Well, if it feels like that, that is utterly authentic. But this vision tells us that it won't be forever. It's only for 1,260 days. We've met that symbolic number before, haven't we? Three and a half years, 42 months. It's Revelation's code for a longish but limited period. A longish but limited period determined by God. And we see it as the limited period between Christ's first coming at Bethlehem and his second coming in glory. So we are now in 2019, right in the middle or somewhere in the midst of 1,260 days. Okay, let's say that round one of the great battle is over and we could call this round the dragon frustrated. Just to remind ourselves and to perhaps rub the lessons in, Let's do a little bit of filling in of our workbook. We're on page 18. Don't do this if you don't want to, but maybe it helps for some of you. So verse 1, the pregnant woman, her crown of 12 stars, tells us this is Israel of the Old Testament. 12 stars, Israel of the Old Testament. Okay, verse 2, the birth pangs, Israel will give birth, in inverted commas, to the promised Messiah. Foretold in the Old Testament, and how? Verse 3, the red dragon, this is Satan or the devil. Verse 9 told us that. This is Satan or the devil. Okay? Okay then, round one of the cosmic conflict, the dragon frustrated. Verse four, the dragon waits to pounce on the newborn child, a picture of King Herod. Matthew 2, verse three. Verse five, the child is snatched up to God's throne. Jesus is protected. And there are some verses there you can look up later which just illustrate something of that protection. Verse 6, 
The woman now represents not Israel, but the new Israel, the Christian church. The church is in the desert, metaphorically speaking, for one, two, six, oh, days. which stands for a long but limited period, okay? Stands for a long but limited period. All right, round two of this cosmic conflict, we're going to read on page 19, Revelation 12, 7 to 12, and this I've entitled, The Dragon Defeated and Expelled. First of all, frustrated, now defeated and expelled. Ready, everybody? And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not cling to life, even in the face of death. Rejoice then, you heavens, and those who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Okay, verses 7 to 16 don't necessarily follow on chronologically from verses 1 to 6. There is a sort of parallelism here, but yet in another way, perhaps they do follow on chronologically. It's both and, isn't it? Not either or. So verse 7, And the war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The great dragon was thrown down. He was thrown down to the earth. Now where does this fit into the Jesus story? Well, it's his crucifixion, isn't it? viewed from above through cosmic, powerful lenses. When Jesus was crucified, a one-off historical event in the holy city Jerusalem, what was really happening in the spiritual realm above as the perfect Jesus voluntarily sacrificed his blood on a curse-laden cross? What was really happening? Answer, the devil, the author of sin, and our accuser was being dealt a decisive and mortal blow. It's the knockout blow that St. Paul describes in Colossians 2.15 like this. Christ forgave us all our sins, nailing them to the cross. What a graphic picture that is. 
And having disarmed the powers and authorities, having spiked their guns, having disarmed the devil and his host, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's a very great verse there. Paul's Colossians 2.15 is Revelations 12.9. We need to get our mind around this. Let's never forget that although Calvary occurred at a particular place and at a particular time, its true reality stands outside time. The cross stands in eternity, with one arm of the cross, as it were, pointing backwards to the beginning of time, and the other arm pointing forwards, as it were, to the end of time. And hence the vision that we had in chapter 5, do you remember, of the Lamb in heaven on the throne, but looking as though it had been slain. In other words, still bearing the scars. They haven't gone, they're still there. The cross in eternity, and therefore powerful and valid right across the years. Now, this has huge significance, as borne out by the victory song that follows from verse 10 onwards. Have a look at it again. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, for the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. You see, here we learn something about the devil or Satan that perhaps we don't normally hear very much about in biblical teaching on him. He has another significant name, the accuser. And this actually goes right back to the Old Testament. The thought is that heaven is a courtroom. In the dock, on trial before God, humankind, every one of us. Counsel for the defense, our counsel, the Archangel Michael. Counsel for the prosecution, Satan. The name literally can mean adversary as well as accuser. So Satan in the permission of God, and this is an extraordinary mystery, Satan in the permission of God opens the case by cataloging our sins. He points that finger of accusation. And we cannot deny what is on the indictment sheet. We are facing condemnation. But no, says the song, no, we're not. Because, verse 11, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Calvary, the death of Jesus, the atoning significance of the Lamb without blemish, the one who takes away sin. Or to put it differently, the one who takes all Satan's accusations onto his own shoulders. The sins are thrown at him, our sins, and they stick. And Satan's days as prosecutor-in-chief and therefore the scourge of humankind, they are over. He is hurled down. Michael and his angels prevail because of what Jesus the Lamb, the Son, was doing down there. What a message. What a message for Mr. and Mrs. First Century Christian and Mr. and Miss Christian standing in a Roman court, accused, accused of crimes against the state and so facing doom. 
What a message. A message that in the heavenly court above, where reality is, that there the accuser has been polaxed. So the hapless defendants here on earth, well, they're acquitted eternally where it matters because of the blood of the Lamb. And I suggest what a message for any Christian in any century facing anywhere accusations from hostile authorities. I wonder if any of you take the Barnabas magazine, Barnabas based in the UK here in Coventry, who are committed to supporting the persecuted Christian church around the world. They produce a very good magazine, and for each day of the month, there is a special prayer request. This is the prayer request for tomorrow, Thursday the 4th of April. I read, Christians in the European part of Russia find themselves under increasing pressure from the legal sphere. Laws keep changing, and new laws are passed. Government inspectors find fault with the slightest violation and immediately send the matter to court instead of giving the church an opportunity to correct it, as they used to do. Fines are much higher than they used to be, and a church that has been found guilty of several violations can be closed. Pray for wisdom for Christians as they defend themselves in these court cases and that the Lord will lead the judges to find in their favor. Surely Revelation 12 has a message of encouragement about the only court ultimately that matters. But a word of caution. Verse 11 does have something else to say. But they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So victory or overcoming not only requires that initial trust in the blood of Jesus, and I hope every one of us here has done that, it also requires theirs and our subsequent refusal publicly to renounce that faith. Some years ago in Burundi, Christians who refused to join in ethnic tribal killings were themselves massacred. One Christian primary school teacher was about to be shot he asked for a few minutes to pray, and then he sang the hymn, Out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus, I come. At the end of the fourth verse, the soldiers hesitated and then pulled the trigger. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 12, a message for all time for harassed, persecuted Christians. But also, a message for any Christian Perhaps you and me, any believer who is acutely aware of accusations. Accusations against us in the heavenly court, so to speak. Accusations of sin that the devil has tempted us into. In his role as the ancient serpent, the deceiver of the whole world. And doesn't Satan love to maximize the guilt and rub these failures in, malevolent blighter that he is? I don't know about you, my friends, but I find that the older I get, the more my failures and mistakes of the past, including some here between 1978 and 1988, the more they seem to confront me and haunt me. And I have to go back again and again and again to the truth that Jesus Christ has dealt with them all. I suppose, in a sense, as you grow older, and nearer the time of departure, 
it isn't a bad thing in some ways to just reflect on the things that weren't quite right, but not with any kind of sense of rubbing it in, but only to drive us more and more to that fountain of blood which Christ shed for us. So how are we going to overcome the, the, the accuser? It can only be by turning or returning to Jesus the Lamb, who, as the book of Hebrews tells us, is our merciful high priest, continually pleading his sacrifice on us, on our behalf. So round one, the dragon frustrated. Round two, the dragon defeated and expelled. Let's just quickly fill in the stuff at the bottom of page 19, shall we? Verse 7, Michael's victory in heaven is a cosmic view of Jesus' crucifixion. And there is the verse from Colossians 2 for you. Verse 10, another name for Satan, the accuser. An Old Testament concept, the references are there for you. When Satan rubs in our failures and guilt, Christians must turn to Jesus, our high priest, who defends us by pleading his sacrifice on our behalf. I'm sure many of us know this lovely hymn. Shall we just say it together? Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. It's rather a nice typo there, isn't there? Did you ever think of Satan as just a temp? <laughs> there should be a T there, I think. <laughs> yep. End of story? No, not yet. For the dragon, though thrown down to earth, is not yet dead. And he is furious at his inevitable end and continues to lash out, and don't we know it? Round three on the battlefield, the, devil, the dragon enraged and still fighting. We're going to read page 20 and verses 13 18. Ready, everybody? So, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great evil, eagle, so that she could fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to her place where she is nourished, for a time and times and half a time. Then from his mouth, the serpent poured water like a river after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman. It opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her children those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Then the dragon took his stand on the sand of the seashore. So here we backtrack 
to the woman's flight into the desert. And we're given a description of how long it's for. Verse 14, time and times and half a time. Oh dear, what does this mean? Well, time is one, times is two, and half a time is a half. Total, three and a half. It's the same, it's just put differently. Surprise, surprise then, the same as three and a half years, the 42 months, the 1,260 days, Revelation's code for a longish but limited period of time prescribed by God. And in that time, the Christian church in the wilderness is ultimately preserved, but not without experiencing trial and danger. Verses 15 and 16. From his mouth, the serpent poured water like a river after the woman to sweep her away, but the earth came to the help of the woman. So danger for God's people from water. What does that remind you of? Where's that happened before? Yes, it's a flashback to the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. There, the pursuing dragon of Egypt threatened Israel's safety. And on that occasion, God parted the Red Sea to reveal dry land for his pilgrim people to walk in. New Testament equivalent. Here in Revelation, the earth soaks up the torrent. Just as rivers in Asia Minor sometimes disappear into the sandy soil, only to emerge miles away, it's a geographical feature of that part of the world. But either way, the message is the same, isn't it? Nature, God's creation, is under his sovereign control and can be turned to support his pilgrim church. At times, in extremis, there have been some astonishing examples of that. In the late 1970s, many Cambodian Christians trying to escape Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge fled westwards towards Thailand through thick and dangerous forest. One family, on the point of starvation, came across some wild berries, but were they edible or highly poisonous? They didn't know. And as they agonized over whether to eat them, suddenly a monkey dropped down from a tree and began to eat the fruit in front of them. So it was possibly okay, at least, to eat. And they did, and they lived. However, Revelation reveals that such divine help only infuriates the dragon even more. And so although he knows he's doomed, he continues to war against the Christian faith and the church. Verse 17, then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her children. I think it's a bit like Nazi Germany in World War II. After the Allies successfully landed in Normandy in June 1944, the Germans knew that they had lost the war. Everybody knew it. But there were another 11 months of bitter, bitter fighting to the bitter end. Dragon-like. I recently read a fascinating book by a chap called Keith Lowe called Savage Continent. It's the story of Europe from 1945 to 1949, in other words, after the war. 
And actually, he makes a very good case for saying that in some ways, life in Europe was worse after the war than it was during the war. We didn't suffer that here. We had food rationing, but that's about it, and austerity. But in Europe, it was awful for four or five years. And he makes this comment. He says, the period in Europe's history from 1945 to 1949 leaves vast regions marked only by the phrase, here be dragons. Here be dragons, yes. I wonder if for you and me, the Christian life sometimes seems hard going, a constant battle, and church life sometimes seems more about politics and decline and defeat rather than growth and victory. Does that ring any bells? Well, that's because the enemy of the church, the enraged, doomed dragon, fights on, but the conflict here below as it rages, let what's happening above, behind the curtains that the apocalyptic has withdrawn for us, let that be our unveiled vision, a battle already effectively won. With such a perspective, you and I can take up the Christian cause with fresh heart, I trust. We can resist the devil, knowing that he has to flee from us. Finally, in this session, then, before our refreshments, let's just fill in the blanks. There are not many of them at the bottom of page 20. Just to help you, remind you, verse 14, a time, i.e. one, times, i.e. two, and half a time, i.e. a half, three and a half in all, half of seven, so a limited period. Half of that complete number, so a limited period. Verse 15, the dragon tries to drown the church, a flashback to the Israelites' crossing of the Red Sea. Verse 17, the enraged dragon continues to fight against Christians, although he knows his ultimate fate is sealed, but we don't actually get to see that until the middle of chapter 20. Why don't we have a moment of quiet before we move to refreshments? We've been looking at one of the contestants, the red dragon, Satan, the deceiver. We've seen him frustrated, defeated and expelled, but enraged and still fighting. Lord God, we thank you for the insight that these chapters give into what's going on in the world today and has been going on for 20 centuries. Thank you that it gives us an insight as to why church life is sometimes hard and lonely. But thank you that it gives us a wonderful insight into the victory already won and one day to be realized. Our oh God, how we cry to you tonight for Christians even now facing harsh harassment. 
that knock on the door in the middle of the night. That insistent, inquisitive government official with suitcases full of paperwork. The baying mob with burning torches. Those in solitary confinement. You can be released if you renounce your Jesus. God, we pray in Jesus' name that even now they may just have the courage to say no. And Father, those refugees fleeing floods, conflict, persecution, drought, famine, and war. Our God and Father, we dare to ask that even now, tonight, nature might come to the aid of some supernaturally. Just open their eyes to your provision in your creation. And Father, for ourselves, if there are any here haunted by past sins, unable to believe they've really been dealt with and forgiven, loving Lord, please direct their eyes to the high priest who has cast out the accuser. And may there be freedom from the wrong sort of guilt. May there be liberation from past fantasies and fears. May there be freedom And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. During the interval, somebody quite rightly um, challenged me about my phraseology concerning Israel. Was I suggesting that Israel now had no place in God's economy? I wouldn't want to say that. I think Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 make it very clear that he does have a very special place for his people. And perhaps rather than saying that the New Testament church has kind of replaced Israel, I think it would be better to say it's fulfilled it. And Israel still has a special place in God's purposes, I think. Okay, let's look at um, page 21 in our workbooks. We're going to read the first part of chapter 13. And we've called this Satan's Allies. So here are identified those two of the three supporters that he has in his corner of the ring. And the first one is known as the beast from the sea. Let's read about him, shall we? And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. 
And the dragon gave it his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have received a death blow, but its mortal wound had been healed. In amazement, the whole earth followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slaughtered. Let anyone who has an ear listen. If you are to be taken captive, into captivity you go. If you kill with the sword, with the sword you must be killed. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, we forgot, didn't we, the last two? I did. Okay, so at the end of our first session, we noted that the red dragon, or the devil, Satan, has been decisively defeated, but he is still thrashing around furiously like a cornered, injured wild animal. He is still very dangerous. Well, in chapter 13 of Revelation, we are shown that the devil continues his struggle by enlisting the support of two sinister allies. The first is described as the beast from the sea, and the second as the beast from the earth. So let's examine these two vicious monsters, and as we do so, gain an insight into how the devil is still at work down the centuries, trying to wreck God's salvation plan and throw offline God's people. First then, the beast from the sea, he's described in verses 1 and 2 as having ten horns and seven heads. Now, to us this sounds bizarre, but for John's readers, and especially Jewish Christians, bells would start ringing immediately. Ah, they would say, this is a flashback to Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. Daniel 7, 7. Because in that chapter, and Daniel, by the way, is also apocalyptic literature, in that chapter, Daniel has a vision of four terrible beasts coming out of the sea. And an explanation is given. The four beasts are four kingdoms or dynasties that will rise and fall in succession. All four will be persecutors of the Jews, anti-Semitic. Daniel's fourth beast has ten horns, so there's the link. So here in Revelation, four beasts from the sea read antagonistic state, hostile kingdom, empire. Here is the crushing machine of harsh, cruel government. Leopard-like in cunning, 
bear-like in brute strength, lion-like in ferocity, and as such, the state has become the instrument of evil power. And hence, the end of verse 2, the dragon, that Satan, the ultimate evil, gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Satan has delegated some of his power and authority to government machines. Now, whilst clicking onto the Daniel link, John's readers would have had no doubt as to the contemporary application. The beast from the sea is imperial Rome, cruel, despotic Rome, hell-bent now to persecute the Christian church out of existence. And if they needed further confirmation of that connection, they need look no further than the coded message presented by the beast's seven heads, verse 1. At one level, could they not represent seven Roman emperors? Perhaps. Seven rulers from Tiberius to Domitian. Seven rulers who had gradually introduced the compulsory cult of emperor worship. And these rulers had taken the blasphemous title. Did you notice the blasphemous names a bit? These rulers had taken the blasphemous title Divus or Divine. And every one of their subjects was being compelled to utter Caesar is Lord on pain of death for refusal. So look at verse 4 then. They worshipped the dragon, that's citizens as a whole, worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, Rome, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? And that's what people said of Rome. Who is like Rome? Mal amazing. So here we have Satan's desperate thrashings against the first century Christian church in Asia Minor through his agent, the state, the beast from the sea, Rome. Incidentally, why beast from the sea. Two reasons possibly. In Jewish literature and thought, the sea was the place where the sea monster Rahab lived. It was the place of chaos and tumult, and the Jews didn't like the sea. So it suits that this beast comes from the sea. But the other answer is much simpler. If you think of your geography, think of Turkey, Asia Minor, the sea, the Aegean Sea, is on the west. And so any Roman official landing came from the sea onto the land. It was as simple as that. But I want to suggest to you that, as so often with Revelation, the application doesn't just stop with the first century. As so often, there is a detectable, localized interpretation, but also a far broader one, as symbolized by that number seven again. And John goes on to say that in the strange encrypted language of verses 5 and 6. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Again, the 1,260 days. Not literally three and a half years, but John's numerical code for a longish but limited period. Namely, again, surely, the period between the first coming of Christ at Bethlehem and his second coming in glory. So 2019, where we are now, lies somewhere within this 42 months. And what is God doing here? 
he is alerting us through this bit of scripture that from time to time, in different ways and different forms, the state will either set itself up as God or against God, one or other, either against God or worse, as God. So the state, instead of functioning properly under divine authority, which is where it should be, Romans 13, the state will sometimes act improperly as divine authority, an authority to be worshipped, followed, and obeyed as the be-all and end-all, and woe betide the church that raises its voice in protest, or anyone else for that matter. Now, in practice, this has had different manifestations. Obvious are the military, atheistic, totalitarian regimes, communist and fascist, of recent history. And in that sense, the beast from the sea would be not only Nero, but Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, and Idi Amin, with Putin and Xi Jinping with their almost godlike status of the party verging perilously near this category. But let's not miss the cutting edge of this by only citing the obvious nasties or the extremes. Surely the beast from the sea is Germanic in any political system or ideology that glories in itself and its self-confessed wisdom. Any political system that deflects attention and honor from the living God and his laws. I'm sticking my neck out here, but what about the so-called American dream? Is it really a dream? Or make America great, for example? Or what about the much-vaunted British values, whatever they are? Is there a sense in which government, state, has or is exalting those to some status which they do not really merit, good though many of them may be. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a Russian dissident jailed by the communists, once said this, I quote, untouched by the breath of God and unrestricted by human conscience, both capitalism and socialism are repulsive. And I think he's right. Even democracy, dare we say it, liberal democracy, which you and I rightly value, even this can be tainted by the beast's breath when it, democracy, glories in the omnicompetence of the human spirit as it sees it, rather than glorying in the one who created that spirit. And so Parliament has decided that it may take upon itself legislation that profoundly affects the morality of our country and which some people feel is deeply mistaken. Not others, I agree. But maybe Parliament is just transgressing into playing God rather than being under God. Yes, this beast from the sea, whatever form he takes, is seductively powerful. Look at verse 8. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slaughtered. So what is the only protection from falling into worshipping the beast? Answer, to have one's name written in the Lamb's book of life. That is, 
to be united in some way with Jesus Christ, the opposite of and antidote to Satan and his beasts. You know, we Christians are sometimes called eccentric, aren't we? If you heard that criticism, you're eccentric, you lot. Now, eccentric literally means off-center. But if Jesus Christ, the slain lamb, is at the center of the cosmos, and we've seen that he is, then it isn't his followers who are off-center, it's everyone else. They are the real eccentrics. So how about each one of us? Are we sure that by repentance and faith in Christ, we belong to him, that we are in his register? My guess is that in a gathering like this, most of us are sure. We know that we've turned to Christ. We've repented and believed. But it just may be that there are some of you here who just aren't quite sure, possibly trusting in your own good works or religiosity to get into heaven. No, it has to be trusting in the death of Jesus personally for you. Because if we're in his register, we're therefore at less risk of being seduced by the beast. Because yes, this beast is not only powerful, he also has devilish perseverance. Go back to verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have received a death blow, but its mortal wound had been healed. In amazement, the whole earth followed the beast. Twin levels of application again. A fatal wound healed, murmured John's readers to themselves. Oh, yes, the Emperor Nero, who had died, but it was widely rumoured, had miraculously returned from the dead to continue his ghastly rule. Thus, if you like, affirming the whole imperial apparatus. But again, you and I must look further to grasp the contemporary truth, surely. The beast recovered from a fatal wound. Yes, I'm afraid so. In 1945, Nazism was pronounced dead and buried. But it isn't dead. The far right is on the march again, especially in Austria, the land of Hitler's birth. And amongst some people in the UK, expressing their extremist views on social media and through the banned group National Action. So-called Islamic State may have lost all its territory, but its ideology is sadly alive and well. We need to be vigilant. Scripture has warned us the wounded beast can come back to haunt us. So with that in mind, let's briefly fill in our worksheet at the bottom of page 21, just by way of recap. We're talking about the beast from the sea, and there's a link to Daniel 7, this is a persecuting power. The seven heads, possibly, don't be dogmatic about it, but possibly those seven mentioned there. The blasphemous name, the emperor's title of Divus, D-I-V-U-S, divine, that appeared on their coinage. Near fatal wound healed, widespread rumor of Nero's return from the dead, in the form of Domitian. Yes, Domitian, he's the reincarnation of Nero, they said. So the immediate identity of this beast is obviously Rome, but wider application to any government that is arrogant, blasphemous, and vehemently anti-Christian. 42 months, verse 5, the whole of the limited period between Christ's first and second comings. 
Verse 8, the state demands total unconditional obedience. Those written in the Lamb's Book of Life, those written in the Lamb's Book of Life, refuse to be sucked in, but this could be costly. Okay, everybody. All right, back to reading together. Page 22, chapter 13, verses 11 to 18. The second ally in the ring, the beast from the earth that I've called a deceiving power. The first was a persecuting power. This is a deceiving power. Let's go. Then I saw another beast that rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound had been healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of all and by the signs that it is allowed to perform on behalf of the beast. It deceives the inhabitants of the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. We've got there at last. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. Yes, it is. So, the dragon's ally number one, the beast from the sea, the state in persecuting mode, and so to the dragon's ally number two, the beast from the earth, verse 11, I saw another beast that rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. Well, well. So this beast looks very different from the first one. Eight fewer horns for a start. Just two. Well, a bit like a lamb or a sheep, except that under the innocent-looking, cuddly exterior lurks a wolf. So this is a counterfeit lamb. Yeah, that's right. This beast symbolizes all false religion, counterfeit Christs. And especially when false religion becomes the ally of the state, propping up its injustices and persecutions. This beast, someone has said, is the first beast's public relations officer. And sometimes, he is called the false prophet. You'll find that in 1613, the false prophet. 
Verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, so all the authority of the state, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. So religion pushing people under state authority. Here for John's readers, of course, the Roman imperial priesthood, colluding with and enforcing that Caesar worship. But since that time, there have been many, many, many manifestations of this. In the 1930s, parts of the Lutheran Church in Germany actively promoted support for the Nazi regime. In Russia today, the Orthodox Church is increasingly hand-in-glove with Vladimir Putin and his cronies, suppressing all dissident voices, as we heard earlier. A former Bishop of Harare was totally in the pay of President Mugabe. False religion, where lies its sting then, not only in its allegiance to the state, but also in its ability to deceive, to pull the wool over the eyes of people so that they think that they're doing the right thing, even in giving their support to evil rulers. There's a verse in chapter 18, we won't get there, I'm afraid there isn't time, but it talks about this when it says, by your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. The magic spell or lure of false religion. And the beast has a further tactic, doesn't he? Verses 16 and 17, it causes all, both small and great, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. What is this mark or the name of the beast? Well, commentators disagree about it, but some suggest that this is a reference to Caesar worship and the certificate you received when you'd done it. A certificate that was rather like wartime ID papers or ration books. You couldn't trade or even buy food without it. And incidentally, even today, there are places where Christians are unable to put a stall up in the marketplace because they haven't given allegiance to the national religion, be it Buddhism or Islam or whatever, or Hinduism. They are forbidden from coming into the marketplace to set up a stall. This is exactly what this is about. Why the mark on the hand and the forehead? Don't think we should think of this literally. The right hand surely suggests people's actions and the forehead surely suggests people's thinking or thoughts. So the two beasts demand all, thoughts and actions. And you either sold yourself and your soul to them and survived or you refused and died. In the time of writing this, it was a literal life or death issue encompassing everyone in the empire. And at a deeper level, it still is a life or death issue for every human being. You see, we either align ourselves with Jesus Christ and therefore have our names written in his book of life or the alternative. And there seems to be no third way. There usually isn't in scripture. So we either align ourselves with Jesus Christ or we bear the mark of the beast, albeit unwittingly. Either because we've deliberately sold ourselves to the system, 
the follies of the world, or because we have just allowed ourselves to drift into its vortex and be consumed by its values and worldview. And this is where the book of Revelation, I think, challenges us most as Christians in the UK in 2019. Have we allowed ourselves to be dragged and sucked into the vortex of the beast and the systems? So Satan continues to look formidable with such powerful allies, but they are doomed to fail in the end, as evidenced by the number given to the second beast. Verse 18, the number of the beast is the number of the person, its number is 666. And let's face it, this is the main reason why many of you have come on this course, to solve the mystery of 666. It has fascinated people for the last 2,000 years, and it has led to some extraordinary behavior and theories. I wonder if you've read Tolstoy's War and Peace. If you have, you will know that his hero, Count Pierre Bezukhov, an aspiring mystic and a Christian, you will know that he spent hours working out that the number 666 was code for Napoleon Bonaparte, who was currently doing the beastly thing of invading Mother Russia. Nearer our times, Ronald and Nancy Reagan, she was very superstitious, changed the number of one of their houses before moving in from 666 to 668. When Miriam and I moved to Knoll in 1988, we discovered that our telephone number was 01564 And somebody said to us, I said, you will be changing it, won't you? And I said, no, we didn't. And as far as I can see, we survived. So how can we explain 666? Well, there are a variety of possibilities. And at this point, I want you to follow exactly my text because I think it'll help you remember it and explain it. This is on the top of page 23. An explanation, my, that's a bit taking a liberty to say that, but anyway, let's say a possible explanation of the number of the second beast, 666. First possibility, the simplest, that 666 is not code for a particular person. Rather, an appropriate symbolic way of describing all false religion. How so? Because the number six falls short of the perfect symbolic number seven. And it falls short not just once, but repeatedly three times. In other words, effectively every time. I.e., false religion in which the second beast specializes repeatedly misses the mark. Okay, that's explanation number one. A variation of that is that six is the number for man or woman either, please note. After all, they were created on the sixth day. But all humans are sinners or failures, so the number six, especially repeated, is the number representing constant failure, a falling short, as it does, of the perfect number seven. So on this basis, 666 once again represents the fact that all false religion misses the mark. Okay, now you can lean to one or other of those views if you wish, but many scholars lean to a third view, that this number is in fact code for a particular person. Start with the fact that in some languages, numerals can be indicated by letters. 
Remember this from your school days? So in Latin, x equals 10, c equals 100. And on this basis, 666 could equal the total of seven numbers. 100 plus 60 plus 200, and then again, 50 plus 200 plus 6 plus 50, making 666 in all. Now, friends, the Hebrew letters also corresponded to numbers or numbers and letters, so now allocate the Hebrew letter that corresponds to each of those numbers and what you get. 100 is Q, 60 is S, 200 is R, 50 is N, 200 is R again, 6 is O, and 50 is N. What do you get? Kasur Nuron, the Hebrew spelling of Caesarea Nero. Well, it's up to you folks to take whichever one you want, okay? But it doesn't really matter, actually. The point is that God has this purse, this thing in absolute control, 666. He knows it. Yeah. All right, okay. That listening to me. Let's fill in the worksheet on page 22, 13, 11 to 18, very briefly this. The beasts from the earth are deceiving power. He masquerades as a lamb. So this is false religion that props up the state. Verse 12 i.e. the Roman imperial priesthood, but wider, meaning any religion, ideology, or ism that seduces people, even through miraculous signs or ritual, away from God and Christ. The mark, possible reference to certificate of Caesar worship, essential for trading and buying food. To resist, Christians, the saints, need endurance and faith. Endurance and faith. Okay. All right. The red dragon, Satan, and his two monstrous allies. But if you remember, at the beginning of tonight's session, I actually said that on this cosmic battlefield, Satan has three allies. And together, the three are a hideous parody of the Holy Trinity. Have you ever thought of that? So who or what is the third? And we move quite briefly to chapter 17, and we're reading together at the bottom of page 23 and over to 24. A third ally of Satan, Babylon the great prostitute, a morally corrupting power. Off we go. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and with the wine of whose fornication the inhabitants of the earth have become drunk. So he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. 
holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her fornication. And on her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of whores and of earth's abominations. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly amazed. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Also, they are seven kings. And he said to me, the waters that you saw where the whore is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. All right then. The prostitute sitting astride this scarlet beast is obviously meant, in the first instance, to signify Rome once again. This is clearly shown by the reference to seven hills, verse 9. You may know that Rome is situated on seven hills, some of which are clearly still definable today. So, if it's obviously Rome, and given that it would be dangerous to mention the city by name, why call this place Babylon? And the answer, of course, lies in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, Babylon is not just an actual city, not merely capital of a cruel empire. Babylon is also synonymous for godlessness in all its forms. So if the first beast portrayed Rome as a persecuting power and the second beast portrayed Rome as a deceiving power, this third ally of Satan portrays the Roman Empire as a morally corrupting power or godless. Its excessive luxuries, its materialism, its sexual promiscuity, and above all its pride or hubris, all these are deeply corrosive forces. Okay. So why then is this ability of Babylon to corrupt described as adulterous or fornicating behavior? I believe this is hugely important. Why is it described as adulterous or fornicating behavior? And the answer is this. In the Bible, God reveals himself as having or wanting to have a relationship with every one of us. And it's a relationship that is likened to marriage, both in the Old Testament and the New. He, God, is the husband, and we, humans, are each to see ourselves as his wife or bride. And collectively, his people, the church, are the bride of Christ and invited to the Lamb's great wedding feast. More of that next Wednesday. So, do you see, every time that the church or we Christians as a community or an individual, every time we become an unfaithful spouse or partner, through turning away from God to greed, money, prestige, self-aggrandizement, man-centered ideology, sexual immorality, every time we try to serve mammon, as Jesus put it, it's as if the prostitute, ubiquitous Babylon, has lured us near her parlor or even onto her bed. Adultery, fornication. 
It's as serious as that. That's how God views it. And we notice the graphic phrase, which I've already highlighted, the wine of her adulteries, the wine of her adulteries, the wine. Yes, you see, tragically, adultery acts like alcohol. It fuddles the mind. It destroys self-control. And the book of Revelation is giving us a loud warning here that the world has a very strong magnetic pull that can so easily seduce us away from Christ, our bridegroom. And it's true, isn't it? I mean, we are bombarded day and night with the world's propaganda, the must-have list, the bucket list, the worship of our bodies, where gyms are just frankly modern temples with music and candles to go with it. I'm not saying we shouldn't be a member of a gym, of course I'm not. But you do see, don't you, that they really are the equivalent of replacement of the local church in many places. The worship of our bodies, or image, terrible problem for young people particularly. The glitter and glamour of celebrity, very seductive and very intoxicating. So this book of Revelation is not just a vision to comfort persecuted Christians. It is certainly that. But it is also, just as importantly, for all Christians in every generation, a health warning from the very throne of God himself. In one of his other Bible books, St. John says this, Do not love the world, for the world and its desires pass away. But the person who does the will of God lives forever. Now that phrase, do not love the world, needs interpretation. Of course, in one sense, we are to love the world. God did. He gave himself for it. And we are to love the world in giving our lives sacrificially for its welfare and its salvation. But in another sense, we are not to love the world. We are to see through it. And we are to say no to its seductions. Because it's going to pass away. It's ephemeral, all of it. Only Christ lasts. So before a moment of silence and questions, let's do one more filling in the bottom of page, well, the middle of page 24, actually. And I will just read this for you because it may just help you to get it right and understand it. The seven hills of verse 9 reveal the prostitute to be, in the first instance, Rome. However, she is called Babylon because in the Old Testament... Babylon not only represents the actual city and tyrannical empire that destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC, but also corrosive godlessness in its many forms, especially arrogance, and there are some verses there. So Revelation's Babylon is any government, state apparatus, city, institution, ideology, or popular fad that seeks by its alluring but corrupting and false beauty to seduce us away from our spiritual union with God and Christ. As such, Babylon, the city of Satan and his allies, is down the centuries the enemy of the holy city, Jerusalem, the city of the Lamb, which we'll see in all its beauty next week. So now, God sees his union with his people as like a marriage. He is our husband. By the way, can I just say, and I hope this won't hurt anyone here, but that is why it's so important that Christians get married and don't live together. Because cohabitation or living together, yes, you can certainly have love in that relationship. Of course you can. But what you don't have is what the Bible calls covenant love, 
which is based on promise and commitment. And it's that love that is meant to reflect the love of God for the world. Do you realize that every Christian marriage and Christian home is meant to be a visual aid to the world to make belief in God easier? But it doesn't work with cohabitation and living together. Quite apart from the fact that statistically, living together has been proved by secular statisticians to be a very dangerous experiment with many pitfalls. Let me just say that I hope that doesn't hurt anybody unnecessarily here. Maybe it'll help. Okay. God is our husband, Isaiah 54, 5. We are his bride or the bride of Christ and guests at the wedding feast of the Lamb, Revelation 19. The wedding feast of the Lamb. This marriage analogy explains why Babylon's work is described as the work of a prostitute and her successes in terms of adultery or fornication. So Revelation is sounding a strong warning to all Christians to be on their guard. So John says this in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, do not love the world. The world and its desires pass away. They pass away. But the person who does the will of God lives forever. Finally, Revelation chapter 18 describes the total downfall of Babylon and God's final judgment on her. Yes, this is a prediction of Rome's ultimate downfall, which came in 440 AD, but it also predicts the end of all anti-God systems as Earth's proud empires pass away. This paves the way for the glorious description of the new heaven and the new Earth in chapters 21 and 22. But you'll have to wait to the 10th of April before we get there. Let's have a moment of quiet and then I'm going to take questions and then we'll pray. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We've got about eight minutes for questions, I think maybe slightly less. Somebody will do the roving mics for us, I think John and his team, thank you. And then I will try to sum up in prayer. Yes, there's one straight away. Thank you, Sheila. Down there. Hi, I'm hardly clever enough to cope with all this, but I just feel, I feel so many of my people who are not Christians say, I don't know how you can, Sheila, you're a feminist, you're so confident, and the Bible is full of anti-feminist rhetoric, you know, and just what we've been talking about tonight, the great prostitute, Scarlet, her, woman, no mention of a man. Well, I think we've had plenty of mentions of, of, of Satan and, and, and the devil and all that, who perhaps is, has the pronoun he rather than she. And Sheila, it, it's not true to say that the Bible is full of anti-feminist rhetoric. I, I'd, I'd urge you not to believe that. The Bible actually exalts, given the time in which it was written and its cultural provenance, it actually exalts women to an astonishing degree. Paul says husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church. That was revolutionary 
in Rome. And the men would have said, what? Yes, you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church. If that isn't pro-women, I don't know what is. Okay, can we move on? Uh, talking about the uh, time, times, and half a time, yes. three and a half, the 42, the 1260. Yeah. Um, I, I, I see what you mean about it being um, uh, indefinite but limited, but it's also exactly half of the perfect number seven. Yes. So I wondered if you could comment on that aspect. <laughs> I'm why, not sure. Why that particular number to mean that meaning? Oh, golly. You mean why seven means complete? Why three and a half means... I, well, I think, I think I can only suggest that because it's exactly 50% of the complete number, that's one way of rubbing it in that it's incomplete. I think that's the only explanation I can give, to be honest. Okay, sorry, that's not very adequate, but I don't think I've got any other explanation. Anybody? Oh, perhaps somebody else has, yes. Oh, no, you haven't. No, right. <laughs> Phew, I thought somebody was going to let me off the hook there. Anyway, as a question here, I think, yes. You said Satan has delegated some of his authority to governments. Yep. And yet it says in Romans 13, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established, yes. and so on. Yes. How do you square those That's two? That's a very good question. Thank you. I think this is one of the examples where the Bible is, if I say the word ambivalent, I don't mean that it contradicts itself. What I mean by that is that it seems to give a certain truth to meet one particular pastoral situation and an opposite truth to meet another pastoral situation. I mean, a classic is faith versus good works, Paul versus James. Are they actually uh, antipathetic to each other? No, they're not. They're two sides of the same coin. And so here, in Romans 13, written comparatively early on after the start of the Christian church, Paul is supportive of the state, not least because the state often supported him and got him out of trouble. You can read that in the book of Acts. But as history progressed through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, the Roman state turned increasingly hostile, and it's that that makes this book say that in some way, Satan has managed to delegate his authority to the Roman state. It's very interesting, actually, that Jesus also said the same. Let me just quote for you what he said, what he said when he was tempted. In, uh, this is Luke's account, not Matthew's, in Luke's account. You know the devil leads him up to a high place and shows him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. Remember that bit? And the devil says, if, if you worship me, I'll give you the lot. And the devil says to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. And then this extraordinary remark, it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So there is a sense, and gosh, I don't understand this, that God in a way has, if you like said, all right, for whatever reason, the devil has a certain limited authority over governments and, the, and, the, and states. And I, I guess we can only say, yes, we know it's true because of the evidence we see. It's both and. And Christians, we as Christians are, are commanded to do what we can to obey the state, if we can, unless the state's rules specifically cross a divine rule. Okay, good, thank you for that. Any other questions? Yes, there's one over here. And there. Good. <laughs> You're getting bolder, aren't you? Probably just time, just time for these two, I think. Yes. And just following on from that last question yeah. and, and your point, um, 
I think quite often Christians tend to focus on one or other of those, depending on whether politically they happen to support one <laughs> government or another. Yes. And maybe the lesson actually is, even if a government is one that we might support, we still have to hold them to account and we still have to point out when they do wrong, as well as maybe pointing out when a government we don't particularly like does something that's right and good. And we tend to, act, you know, we tend to fall into the same trap as everybody else, that we, uh, you know, kind of excuse bad behaviour on a government that we support and, and always criticise one that we don't, when actually we need to just be holding everybody to account and, and to a higher level, regardless of, of perhaps whichever regime or party it might be. Thank you. I think that's a very balanced and helpful comment. I mean, I'm appalled at some of the stuff that's posted on the social media about Brexit and MPs, sometimes by Christians. And it's vitriolic language that just isn't worthy of, 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 of Christians, I think. So I hope that in the Brexit debate, whatever happens in the next few months, we can at least talk graciously about those with whom we may disagree very profoundly. I think that's what you're saying, isn't it? And thank you. Yeah, okay, and there was one more, and this is the last, I think. So I like that numbers have quite significance in the book and they yeah. mean specific things. But yes. The dragon and two of its other allies have the same number of heads and the same number of horns, seven heads, ten horns. Yep. But each time the number seven means something different. Does that not add? Your, your explanation on one of them was seven being complete evil and then the seven hills and then the seven different um, emperors. Yes. Does that not add further confusion when the same number is being used in very different ways for the rest of the book when the number of the sevens well, used it, again? It has added to the confusion, yes. Um, where, which is why I think we need to get a grip of the idea that Revelation is at one and the same time a message for the contemporaries of John. So the seven real churches and the seven real emperors and the seven real hills of Rome, but also because the number seven represents completeness, seven days of the week, seven times four, the phases of the moon and all that, because it represents completeness, it also represents uh, history out into the, into the future way beyond the first century. I think, I, th I think that's the only sensible explanation we can really give, but thank you. Friends, it's half past nine. It's time to stop. May I just pray, please? Lord, at the end of our first session, we prayed for our world and for Christians elsewhere. But now, we pray for ourselves. And we ask your forgiveness for the times when we allow ourselves to be seduced by the beast into adultery or treachery against you, unfaithfulness. Please forgive us for that. And help us, Lord, to discern where these particular attacks come from. Give us discerning and shrewd minds and willing hearts. And if you've put your finger on anything tonight, a practice or an attitude, a way of spending our money or leisure time, things we do on our computer at night, if, there's, if you put your finger on anything like that that has to change, please give us the strength from you to do that and to do it quickly. 
not to put it off. If it means wiping our computer clean of certain programs, help us to do that tonight. Whatever it is, Lord, you know. Grant that as Easter approaches, we may be a purified people, able to worship you and reflect your love to a crying and needy world. Bless us as we go our ways now. Give us good sleep. Thank you for the promise of your protection. In Jesus' name, amen.